I want to welcome you here. If you're visiting with us, we're delighted you chose to spend a part of your Sabbath day with us here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. If you turn to John chapter 7, while you do, I have a couple of additional announcements for you. And top on that list is as we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, really this, this incredible holiday that we have, an opportunity to really celebrate what Dr. King did to bring about the progress that we've made to this point in civil rights. And I think it's very appropriate that we happen to be in a passage of Scripture uh, that really points towards that self-sacrificial living uh, that Dr. King so wonderfully presented to us in his life, that as he chose to say things that people didn't want to hear, chose to be places that people didn't want him to be, and chose to live a life that was sacrificial for, for, for the cause in which he not only believed but should have been uh, true all along, and that's the cause that all men have been created by, by God equal, uh, that we should treat each other with respect and with love and with care, uh, and believed in nonviolence. And uh, as we celebrate uh, his birthday tomorrow, I, I pray that your day is filled with that same peace uh, that Dr. King fought so hard for. And I'm going to make a couple of tie-ins today to our passage. also want to pray for our missionaries. We have a couple of teams that are out in the field right now, one in El Salvador uh, doing children's ministry and some conferences in BBS, and a second one with Pastor Pat doing some construction in Peru. And so we want to pray, and so if you would join me as we do so, uh, we'll turn to John 7 here in a moment. Father, thank you. Thank you for the legacy of Dr. King, and we pray uh, that the lessons that were put forth and learned to some degree but still need to be finished, God, uh, we as a people would remember uh, that we have an obligation who know you to love like you love, and thank you for that great example uh, that Dr. King left, and pray that you'd watch over his family that still remains, Lord, we are grateful for, for all that has been done to this point. Pray that you would also bless our missionaries, uh, Lord Pastor Steph and his team, Pastor Pat and his team. Would you get them back here safely? We thank you for what's already been done. And pray that you'd continue to use us as we share the gospel around the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 7 and verse 1. And now... You're going to see initially here that Jesus is going to send first the disciples, his actual family, his brothers, uh, off to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason that this is important, there were three feast days that were mandatory for the children of Israel as they dwelt in the land, the promised land, and, and those were Passover, Pentecost, and this one, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so it's a very special feast. It was a feast that was designed to present a very, very beautiful picture uh, of what we have received as believers in Christ uh, through salvation that comes by grace and through faith. But Jesus is going to go and celebrate, and the next several chapters are actually this picture of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so there are several things that happen. We're going to be taking them piece by piece as we journey uh, through chapter 7 and also into chapter 8. And so uh, hang in there with this reoccurring theme. And first and foremost, as we pick up these first 13 verses, it begins this way. And this is where it really ties in to the picture of Dr. King's life. 
because Jesus was not politically correct. Jesus spoke things that people in that day and time did not want to hear. And Jesus, as he traveled through uh, the region of Galilee and then went to Jerusalem, very often said things that people found offensive. And unfortunately, though the message was love, as it was with Jesus and with Dr. King, uh, people found offense that there would actually be truth spoken. And I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that Dr. King was first and foremost a pastor. And as he spoke as a pastor, as he spoke the word of God into our society by the way he lived his life and the message that he put forth, he was doing very much the same thing that Jesus is doing here, which is telling people something that at times they really did not want to listen to. And so I pray that as we read these words, we'll realize the connection uh, between the two. And after these things, verse 1 says, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. It's been already made clear that the Jews, the religious leadership, the rulership, those who were of the Pharisees, of the Sanhedrin, those who were of the scribes, those who were of the Sadducees, those who ruled, in essence, the, the Jewish way of life and the Jewish religion were very much already incensed about what Jesus was saying and doing. He made it very clear. He's already said it one time. He's going to say it six more times. He's going to use this statement in the Greek language translated into English, ego, a-emi, or I am. This incredible single thing is going to get him into tremendous hot water because the Jewish people would have understood that he was making a direct correlation between himself and Yahweh, Lord of hosts. He's making absolutely no bones about it that he is God. And so that's going to get him in trouble. And while Dr. King never said that he was God. He did claim to speak for the Lord, and he was right. And, and, and as we think about those two things together for just a moment, as Jesus was speaking, he's saying, look, these, this is the way you need to respond to your fellow man. This is the way you need to live your life. This is what's required of you by God. Jesus was not giving people an opportunity to believe something else. He's saying, this is what, how it is, and this is what you need to think about this particular subject. And so he's going to use as a backdrop for that the Feast of Tabernacles. And we'll unfold this a little bit as we look at this this morning. So as Dr. King was speaking, he was saying, look, we can't continue down this road anymore. We can't go this direction. It is time for us to really live out our faith, so to speak. It's time for us to treat one another with respect and love and care and concern, regardless of skin color, regardless of your upbringing, whether you're born in the South or born in the North, or whether you have this view or that view of the way life ought to be lived. We are all equal in God's eyes. And Jesus is going to now put forth that very message where that message came from. That's God's message to this world. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only remedy for that is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten singular son for every last one of us. And the only way anyone comes to know God personally, to to have the, the gift of eternal life, is to know Jesus, his son. So it was across every boundary, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, socioeconomic boundaries were all broken down because of the message of the cross. And so as we look at this message, great message for us this day uh, as we celebrate Dr. King's life and legacy. And now the Jews, the Feast of Tabernacle was at hand for them. And his brothers therefore said to him, Depart, And go into Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. So they're starting to try and instruct Jesus. Go, look, if you really want people to know who you are and what you're about, you need to make sure that you do these things openly. And Jesus is going to kind of chastise them a little bit and say, my time is not yet to come. It's not... It's not there yet. For if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Well, then we get a little insight into this. For even his brothers did not believe in him. It goes to show you how close you can be to a situation, how close you can be to seeing the truth, how close you can come to understanding the, the real situation and yet still miss it. Bear in mind that these are Jesus' brothers. We don't know exactly how many there were. We know of James, or half-brothers. This is the family of Mary and Joseph, the children born to them. But we do know this. They were raised in the same home as Jesus. They had been around him his whole life. They're now walking with him, and he's in Galilee, and he's doing miracles. He's already been to Jerusalem one time, and he's... Remember, healed that man at the pool of Bethesda. They know these things, and yet they're still trying to tell him what to do. Sometimes we try and tell Jesus what to do. Every once in a while, we think maybe God needs some instruction from us, and I can tell you that's a futile thing to do. Uh, He knows best. And then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. And so he makes it really clear. He was on his father's timetable. He was on his father's plan. The plans that God had from before the foundation of the world had been laid. Jesus was on that mission and he knew exactly where he was going and exactly what he was doing and exactly when he should accomplish those things. And yet, the disciples didn't get it. His brothers didn't get it, who were also disciples, but not believers. They were followers, but they did not yet know him personally. But your time is always ready, he says to them. He says, look, you, you guys need to be busy about what you've been called to do. And it's true for us today. Can I remind you that we as the church have been given a task, and that task is to go into all the world and make disciples of all men. Go to all nations. It's the reason we have a team in El Salvador. It's the reason we have a team in Peru. And that's the reason in a week I will be going back to Peru and doing a pastor's conference down there. 
That's the reason we're going to China. That's the reason we're going to the Philippines. That's the reason we're going to Uganda. That is the reason that we are doing what we are doing. It's the reason we go to downtown Los Angeles. It's the reason we go to Wilmington. It's the reason that we wander the streets. It's the reason we go out on the pier at Redondo. The reason is to go make disciples of all nations. That's why we do it. It's a direct command to us to go into all the world and make disciples. You see, they're waiting for Jesus to do something spectacular when they've already been given the tools to go make disciples. Get busy doing what you have already been told to do and let God give you the pieces of your life's puzzle as He sees fit. Sometimes we're waiting for God to expose the whole plan of our lives before we get busy in any way, shape, or form. Just do what you know to do right now today is the message. There's always plenty to do. And you should always be ready in that sense. Notice what he says in verse 7. And take the rest of this down to verse 13. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You know, when you begin to speak the truth about the world, when Dr. King said, this world is a mess, our nation's a mess, this is wrong, he was hated. When Jesus said the same thing, he was hated. When you tell the world the truth about what it believes, very often the world is going to hate you. Because truth is truth. The question is, are you going to be bold enough to speak it? Are you actually going to say what God has told you to say? Or are you going to take a step back from it? Well, you know, as long as you have faith in something. As long as you believe in some higher power. As long as you're spiritual. Brothers and sisters, we need to speak the truth about Jesus. Because there are billions of people on this planet who are spiritual, and yet they are perishing. Because they believe all kinds of things other than the gospel. So it's not about being spiritual, it's about being people of the truth. And the truth is, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. So Jesus is about to set out on the actual mission. And it's going to cost Him eventually His life, exactly as Dr. King lost His life for speaking the truth. You see, we here in America didn't want to hear the truth. I remember being a teenager in 1968. A lot of people in America that did not want to hear the truth that racism was very much alive and well in 1968, and they still don't want to hear that it still exists today. We need to keep speaking the truth. As God shares the truth with you, speak the truth. Speak that truth in love, but speak the truth. No one ever gets made whole, gets made right by you letting them believe a lie. Speak the truth. Speak it in love. When works are evil, speak the truth. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. In other words, he had some other things that needed to yet be done. 
And when he had said all these things, he remained in Galilee, but his brothers had gone up. And then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. So Jesus goes the long way. He sends the brothers on the short path. They're going to head down likely the Jericho Road through the canyon past the Arbel Cliffs and up to Jerusalem. And then the Jews sought him at the feast. And they said, where is he? You can see the wisdom of God here. Jesus knew this would be happening. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. And some said, he is good. And others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. It's interesting. Jesus completely spoke the truth. And there were some people that said he was good. And there were still some people that said he was evil. That's what happens when you speak the truth. When you speak the truth, very often you will be accused of being evil. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. The Jewish people obviously controlled Jerusalem at that time. So I usually do this... I'm always amazed, you know, because we who occupy the pulpit, we, we are supposed to be studied and able to communicate things in very short periods of time. I was thinking back on some of the things that I was reading through a whole list, actually, of statements that Dr. King had made while he was still here on this earth. And he said this, He said, the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who remain neutral in times of great moral conflict. And the reason that's important to us, Jesus said much the same thing. Jesus was speaking of great moral conflict. Conflict between people who claim to know God and love God and yet did nothing that God told them to do. We need to do what God tells us to do and say what God tells us to say. And it's important for us today. So in our journey with the Lord, brothers and sisters, let us speak what the Lord has spoken to us. Let us be who we're supposed to be. Let us be without controversy, people who will speak the truth into those situations that we are confronted with. We need to be people of the truth. That's who Jesus is. It is the truth that sets men free. Jesus is traveling to the Feast of Tabernacles, and that feast was at the end of the autumn feast, the fall feast. So in the beginning, you have the spring feast. In the latter part of the year, you have the 10 days of awe that culminates with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And after the Day of Atonement, in essence, these feasts all kind of followed one right after another. This is the final feast of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. And the beauty of this feast is it really culminates with exactly who we are in Christ. It it gives us a, a picture, in essence, of what happens to us when we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
And so as you think on it, there were all kinds of names that were used for what we call the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Weeks, or the Ingathering, or Sukkoth, or Sukkoth, or Sukkot. All of those names are appropriate. It depends on how you transliterate some Hebrew words. But the point being this. In the agrarian economy of the time, the one thing that you celebrated was the final harvest. And there was a joy of that harvest. And this happened at the end of the harvest, after the harvest was brought in, and all of the crops had been stored, and there was a sense that there was the goodness of the Lord upon them. And so to celebrate that, they would look back. And in this case, they looked way back. Can I tell you it's good for us to look way back in our lives? Look back at your life before you came to faith in Christ. Look back at the way you used to be, look at how you are now, and look forward to the future when you'll finally get home to be with the Lord. And what that should do is exactly what this feast does to the Jewish people, and that's to bring you to a place of absolute wonder and joy at the work that the Lord has done in your life. That was the celebration that the Jewish people called tabernacles. They looked at what happened when they wandered in the wilderness of sin. Anybody in here thankful that you're no longer wandering in the wilderness of sin? Amen? But you can look back and you can remember when you were wandering in the wilderness of sin. You see the Hebrew name here actually means booths. And if you travel around anywhere where there's a large concentration of Jewish people, anywhere in the world to this day, when they reach the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of the Ingathering, where they would gather in all of the bounty of the year, uh, you'll find them building these, these little temporary shelters. If you go to New York during the Feast of Tabernacles, you can go out on fire escapes and you'll see people having built a booth on their fire escape. They'll be out on the street, on the curb. You'll find little booths, little temporary dwelling places. And there's some beautiful things that we can remember from it. Uh, I got this shot from in Israel in a kind of a campground. It's like this is the modern version, kind of inspired by Coleman. You know, there's tents there, but there on that sign is exactly what Jesus said. He said, I am. That's what those four letters actually mean. That tetragrammaton is, is the holy name of God. And by the way, just so you know, Jehovah is not actually found anywhere in your Bible. So anytime you see Jehovah, that's to help you understand who he is, but it's not found there in the original language. It's Yahweh, Lord of hosts, it's found there. Y-H-W-H. But the people would remember what happened to them when they were in the wilderness. And so there's some lessons that we can learn as Jesus is sending the disciples to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacle. What would it have been that they would have understood? First thing, they would have understood the agony of their beginning. You see, when they were passed over, they've already celebrated that. When they were in Egypt, they were brought out of Egypt, they were passed over, their sins were passed over because of the blood. Amen? They've already celebrated that holiday. But they went from being passed over to into the wilderness. 
And that wilderness was called the wilderness of sin. And it was there that they dwelt in very temporary tabernacles. But that wilderness was a hard place. That wilderness was the way your life used to be before you came to faith in Christ. That wilderness was hard. That wilderness was not easy. That wilderness was a time when you struggled. That wilderness was a time when you suffered for those things which you probably should have actually suffered the consequences for, but God was merciful to you. You see, when we think back on our own time in the wilderness, we can learn the same lessons as Jewish people learned from the Feast of Tabernacles. Even though I was desolate, God saved me. The Jewish people did not save themselves in the wilderness. If it weren't for God bringing the manna every day, they would have died. Had it not been for God providing them shade from the heat, they would have died. Had it not been God turning the bitter water into sweet water, they would have died. you get the picture? And in each one of those examples, they did nothing. God did everything. That's who God is. God is merciful. He's so merciful, in fact. If you were God and you could live anywhere, would you move into the wilderness of sin with a bunch of people who grumbled and complained about you? I wouldn't. Go, you guys can stay in the Sinai. I'm going to be in the south of France, and when you get done complaining, call me. But God literally moved into a tent himself with the children of Israel in the wilderness. You see, he was merciful to them. He didn't give them what they deserved, he gave them what they did not deserve. What they deserved is they should have suffered and all died in the wilderness. But he didn't let them suffer and die in the wilderness. He went right where they were. And instead of bringing the glory of heaven, he himself dwelled in a tent. And so that they would know he was with them, they had a pillar of fire by night and a cloud during the day. So he provided for them a way for them to know that he was with them even though they didn't deserve it. They should have suffered without God's presence in the wilderness. They were the ones that were partying at the foot of Mount Mount Sinai, right? Moses goes up on the mountain. What do the people do? Moses is gone for 40 days. By the end of 40 days, the people are at the bottom. They're doing exactly what they shouldn't do. So much so they take all of their earrings and gold and they melt it down and make a golden calf and then they tell God, well, we didn't do that. It just came out of the fire by itself. It's kind of like me with my life. You with your life. We, We try and tell God, well, you know, it wasn't me. It's the same story as Eve and Adam, right? Not much has changed in the last few thousand years of man's history. But God had mercy. He taught them they had to live with joy. And here's the deal. Look, you're in a booth right now. You didn't know that, right? 
You're dwelling in a tabernacle right now. Every last person in this room is in a tabernacle. It's a temporary dwelling place. But what Jesus said was, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you might be also. For in my Father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself. And that mansion that's being prepared for you is your actual home. So the joy that's being pictured here in the Feast of Tabernacles is they moved into these booths and they stayed in there for seven days and then on the eighth day, with this great proclamation of joy, they would move back into their real home. So the picture is this. Right now, you're in a tabernacle. And that tabernacle you're living in may last a few years Most of us, it lasts like 70, 80 years. Some of you, if God doesn't want you in heaven right now, you have to stay here longer. I'm just kidding. Length of days is a blessing from the Lord. I don't know exactly why. But you stay here for maybe 100, 110, 120 years if you're the oldest person on the face of the earth. But you're in a tabernacle right now. This world is not your real home. One day you are going to go live in your real home, which is in heaven. So the Feast of Tabernacles reminded the Jewish people to have joy looking forward to moving into your real home. Man, if we lived our lives like that, realizing that whether it's good or whether it's not so good, whether you have plenty or whether you have want, This is not the end for those who love the Lord. The Jewish people were supposed to understand that from the Feast of Tabernacles. They got to return to their real home. And then a final thing. This incredible thankfulness for everything. You see, what they learned in the wilderness was, as bad as it was in the wilderness... God always had a plan to deliver them from the wilderness into their real home. That causes you to look at life very differently. It causes you to be thankful for everything, every challenge, every difficulty. In the hands of God is an opportunity for the Lord to show Himself faithful. Now, I don't know about you, if, you, if you've not ever... I, I, I've been in the city of Elot, which is the southernmost city in Israel. And Elat is kind of a resort town. It's pretty nice, some nice hotels there. But you don't have to do anything but look across the Red Sea to either side, to the right or to the left, and you can see the wilderness of sin. And it looks today exactly like it looked in biblical times. It is desolate, beyond desolate. It is dry, it is barren, It is completely treeless, plantless. It is about as abysmal a place as you could possibly imagine to ever be unless you brought an awful lot of supplies with you. So now imagine you're the Jewish people and you've gone across into the wilderness. You've come from Egypt, which to us would be on the western side of the Red Sea and you crossed over to the eastern side into this thing called the Anvil of the Sun. The reason it's called the Anvil of the Sun is an anvil is something you beat on. The sun is that thing in the heavens that kind of makes it warm occasionally. 
Sinai, the daytime temperatures in the summer are around 120 degrees. And yet they went there and somehow God preserved them. God brought them out, so they were very thankful that they even survived. And when you can be thankful for just surviving, you can be thankful for everything else. So he says to them, look, whether you see it or not, whether you're ready for it or not, you guys have a job to do. Get busy doing it. My time is not yet, but your time is now. God has an eternal plan. That's not the question. The question is, what are you doing that God's already shown you to do? Get busy about that. Get moving the right direction. God will open up those other doors, those things that maybe he hasn't shown you directly yet that he wants you to do, but he has shown you some things. And so Jesus says to his own family, look, you guys get busy about what I've called you to do. Don't worry about what I'm supposed to be doing. You worry about what you're supposed to be doing. It's game time. As you're watching the football playoffs, you know, when it gets down to this time of the season... You can't go just practice and get good all of a sudden. You need to have done what you needed to do during the regular season to be available this time of year. And the same is true in your spiritual walk. You need to simply do what God's called you to do throughout the entire season and be ready for when it's your time. And so he tells them, look, it's time for you to get busy about what I've called you to do. There's some spiritual lessons so we wrap this up this morning, this afternoon. What, what, what can you and I learn from this time? And we're going to see these over the next a couple of studies. Because there's some beautiful spiritual lessons. They all come from the Feast of Tabernacles. First and foremost, God is your shelter. Your shelter is not your bank account. Your shelter is not your home. Your shelter is not your spouse. Your shelter is not this country and our military. Your shelter is nothing save the Lord. And if he doesn't shelter you, you are not sheltered. God is your shelter. He's your covering. That's the whole picture of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. That whether you're in a booth made of sticks or whether you're in your regular earthly home or whether you're wandering in the mission field or whether you have a position high in government, or whether you're doing some what seemingly to the world is a menial job, God is your shelter. He always has been, always will be, and He is the only one that can be trusted with that task. A second thing is that Jesus is the only living water there is. We've already heard Him speak to this woman at the well, We're going to hear him speak again, and he's going to use an even different analogy because part of the ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles is every day for the first seven days, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, they would take these golden pitchers, fill them with water, go back to the temple, and fill up these water basins that were supposed to be a picture of the work of the Spirit of God in the world. And they would take water that was supposed to be a representation of the living water, and take it, pour it into the basin, they would make it available so that that living water could wash away sin. 
And then on the final day of the feast, they would spill the water on the stairs, and that would signify that it was going out into the world. Look, the only living water that we have, the only water that really quenches thirst, the only water that you can have your thirst quenched with is Jesus himself. The rest of the water is going to leave you thirsty again. It's also that picture of Jesus washing away all of our sin. We see that in the Feast of Tabernacles. That finally there's this joy of knowing that everything, your debt is paid. You see, on Yom Kippur, though the scapegoat was prayed over and it went out into the wilderness, and then the other goat was sacrificed so that the sins of the people were taken care of, the moment it was over, somebody probably sinned. Might even be in the mind of the high priest. And he's like, man, I can't believe I have to do this. I'm going to have to do it again next year. So in his heart and his mind, he's probably already in that attitude of, oh, this isn't going to take care of everything forever. But they celebrated during the Feast of Tabernacles that the sins were actually washed away. They were done. So they could walk in joy. God was okay with them. We're going to see them light these giant candelabras, the, the, this huge tower that by the way in the top of these things the wicks that were in there were actually the garments of the priests as they served in the temple and they would light up all of jerusalem people could look and say man praise god we used to live in booths but we've been taken out of the booth and we live in our own home and god's taking care of us he's sheltered us over he's forgiven our sin he's washed away our sins and now we walk in that light even if it was dark The other thing that they would realize is that they would, they have a home, a permanent home. They weren't in it yet, but it was coming. So they look forward to the future. That future we still look forward to. You and I, as we stand here today, as, I, as, as we are walking around the halls of this church today, yes, we have kingdom work in us, and yes, we have the work of the Spirit that's available to us now, but Jesus' literal kingdom is still coming. One day, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and Scripture says in Zechariah 14 that you're actually going to celebrate exactly one feast. Guess which one it is? It's the Feast of Tabernacles. You're going to go and remember all these things. When the Lord comes again, that that picture is so perfect in, in how it explains who we are in Christ or we're going to see then fully what we see partially now. And we'll celebrate during that millennial age with the Lord Jesus, this beautiful work that's been done in each of our lives. And so for right now, you dwell in a temporary dwelling place. But know this, one day he's going to put you into the real mansion he has prepared for you. That is going to be glorious. In the meantime, we can have joy and we can have forgiveness and we can walk in newness of life and be cleansed of our sins. We can have that refreshing as as the Holy Spirit falls upon us and takes care of those needs that we have in our daily lives. All of these things are a picture of this celebration that the Jewish people would have as they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. So while we're still in our tabernacles, let's celebrate. Let's have some joy, amen? Because one day it's going to get really good. 
we're going to go home to be with Jesus. And this earthly travail will be over. And the tabernacle that you're in, whether it's still kind of in good shape, or perhaps you're ready for a trade-in now, you're going to move into a mansion. And then, would you stand and let's join in prayer. Maybe you need prayer today. Perhaps you came in and maybe your tabernacle's a tad worn. Maybe, perhaps there are some today that have never invited Jesus into your life and, and you do not know the Savior that can free you from the bondage of sin. I want to strongly encourage you that the gospel is very simple. And Jesus just simply asks that you believe in Him, that your sins might be forgiven, that you'd have eternal life. We have a prayer team in our prayer room. I'd love to pray with you. We have pastors available that would love to pray with you. Do not let this day pass by. If that's you, and you need to meet Jesus today, all you need to do is invite Him in. Recognize who He is. He's God's own Son. Came to this earth, died on Calvary's cross. Paid the price for your sin. And if you will ask, He will forgive yours. Write your name in His Lamb's book of life. And give you the Holy Spirit so that you can walk with Him. All you need to do is confess that He's Lord. Ask Him to be your Savior. Father, thank You for this time. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us while we're in our tents. Lord, while we're in these tabernacles, these temporary dwelling places, that you'd give us joy. Would we have the joy that the children of Israel felt when they moved out of the booth and into the mansion? Lord, we look forward to that day when you free us. In the meantime, give us joy in the moment. Give us joy for today. Help us, Lord, to walk with you. Help us to tell the truth always. We thank you, God, for your amazing work in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.